Welcome to the Produce Industry Podcast, your weekly download on current events, trends, market reports, and community discussions. Join us each week from Tampa, Florida, as we cover all aspects of the produce supply chain industry. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Patrick Kelly. and welcome back to the History of Fresh Produce. Uh, today, unfortunately, Patrick could not be with us. He is in Florida, and I am today in Cork, New York, uh, which is a hamlet of the town of Rochester. And more specifically, I am at Saunders Kill Farm and sitting in the historical stone house in 1787 on the farm. And graciously welcoming me to his home is Jack Schoonmaker, and welcome to the History of Fresh Produce, Jack. Thank you, sir. Nice to have you here. So, fascinating history from what I understand here. You are the second oldest farm, or I guess operating farm, in the United States or in Americas, right? Well, I don't think so, no, because possibly in New York State or Possibly in the Northeast. Okay. Because Columbus came here in 1492. Yes. And and settled in the south of here, you know, Virginia and so on and so forth. I'm sure there are farms older than this one. I think we are the oldest farm now in the Northeast. There were three farms about the same age. One was in around Poughkeepsie, New York. I don't believe that's still longer there. That was owned by a widow, and she passed. And then there was a uh, tricentennial farm in Rhode Island, and I don't think, and then we were the third Got it. And, but I think now we are the first, but don't don't quote me. But, uh, <laughs> Still something, obviously, very proud. But, it's uh, an impressive, impressive legacy. I think we, we'd love to hear the origin story of the farm, starting with the ancestors that came over. Obviously, like many stories in America, there's a European origin story here. So I know your ancestor, Henrik Schoonmaker, came here from Hamburg, which... For a lot of listeners, might be shocking, but that city was actually part of the Holy Roman Empire at this period in time. So that's how far back we're going. This is in the mid 1600s, and he came over here to what was then Fort Orange, yes. part of the New Netherlands. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that story and how how he settled here. Henry came in 1640, and he came from Hamburg, Germany, but he actually came from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, or Holland. But he had to go to Hamburg to get a boat or mm. passage from Europe to the USA. Yes. And and he arrived in Port Orange, which is now Albany, in 1640. He had 11 children and two wives. I don't mm. know why he had he two wives. <laughs> but interesting, he was ousted from the church because he owned a tavern in Port Orange and would not close on Sunday. So they ousted him from the church. But anyway, one of his children, Joachim, in 1680, came back down the Hudson from Port Orange to Roundout, which is now Kingston. Mm. That area was partially settled, Roundout, Hurley, Marbletown. And I presume he just kept walking up the Roundout Creek until he found this spot right here and settled here. Yeah. 
and that was in 1680. Where he found a wife, I don't know. There's not too much history about her, but anyway, he settled here in 1680 in a same piece of ground that we're sitting on right now. And I, pre I presume what caught his eye was behind us here is a 100-acre field, mm. river bottom field, which I can show you later if you'd like. But Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and I presume this caught his eye, and the family has been here about 340 years. So. Amazing. Well, it's interesting from, from what I read about Hendrick. So, like you said, he was an innkeeper, and then he moved out. And it, it sounds like, in addition to that, he actually volunteered part of the Esopus or Esopus militia at the time, because I guess they were having conflicts with the indigenous peoples here at the time. And so he settled a little further down, uh, and what was then Viltfike, like you said, was Kingston. Yeah. And then he served in that militia, and I guess it was Peter Stuyvesant himself that granted him the 300 acres that makes up part of this land here that we're sitting at that you talked about as payment for his militia service. So it's interesting to see yes, that yes. you have you have contacts in your family to Peter Stuyvesant, which was you know the director general of, of this territory yes, yes. at that point. And then I understand he played a significant role in the Battle of Wildweig. There was a massacre in 1663 when the indigenous struck back. There was two wars within that series, and then his son Yoakum was actually captured. I understand, right, by the indigenous. Well, supposedly, and supposedly, yeah. History has it that he had one eye. Ah burned out by the original tribes. That, right. But fortunately, as I understand it, the Esopus Indians were quite popular in this area. Yes. And they were quite friendly to the Correct. folks moving in. Yeah, I think the issue that arose from, like, yeah. from reading the chronicles here was that a lot of the trade that was happening, the settlers, the Dutch settlers, kept trading alcohol. And the in, in indigenous people, this was completely new, and they said, look, don't, don't give us that anymore. It's messing up our community. People are going crazy. And the Dutch initially were saying, we're telling their citizens, like, don't don't sell this stuff to them. Yeah. They don't, we need to keep the peace. But, of course, yeah. you know, they kept doing it anyway, and that's what ended up causing that conflagration of, of issues. Yeah. But, yeah, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting story about. I hadn't uh, heard that one before. <laughs> <laughs> but Yoakum, you know, the, like you mentioned, the the ancestor of yours that came out with one eye from that incident actually ended up being one of the three original trustees of the town of Rochester, granted yes. by Queen Anne of England once territory shifted from the Dutch to the English, of course. And he was the one, along with these two others, that basically distributed the lands to the different settlers. Well, it was a Schumacher, a DePew, and a Bevere. Right, right. And they, they were awarded trusteeship of the town of Rochester by Queen Anne of England. Yeah. And it was named Rochester because Queen Anne's son was named Rochester. Correct, yes, the Earl of Rochester, and yeah. The Earl of Rochester, yes. And it was a huge track of land. It went from here, Accord, the Shrongums to the east, the Catskills to the west, and it went all the way to the Delaware River. Yeah, nor enormous piece of land. Enormous piece enormous. of land. And they had the authority to deed it out to settlers as they came to the area. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about Indians and the problems with the Indians, but fortunately, we're about 10, 11 miles east of Napanoc. Okay. And supposedly, they were the... Fontainekill Indians, or the and or the Del no, they were the Delaware. Delaware, yeah. And and uh, there was the Fontainekill yeah. massacre, right? 
And supposedly right. the Indians killed off all the natives at that time. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but that was about 12 miles west of here. Right, right. So uh, the Schoemaker family was very fortunate that they didn't get, get involved in that. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they certainly were able to to maintain their uh, existence yeah. in this. Yeah, it was a very wild place at the time. Yeah. You know, it was, it was the frontier. We don't think of it necessarily today uh, yeah. as part of New York, but it, it was the frontier at that time. But yeah, coming back to this schoonmaker. So Joachim establishes the farm we see here today. Yes. After, so third generation in from the original schoonmaker that came here. And he builds the house that we're sitting in, right? 1787. Well, no, no. The, this house was built in, uh, in 1786. Okay. After the Revolutionary War. Right. And the first schoonmaker came here in 1640. So that's almost not, not quite 150, 160 years previous. But there's the house next door, which was the Davenport homestead, was originally a schoolmaker property. And that stone house was, is about 100 years older than this one. There's a, an old foundation down by the roundout that possibly was original home foundation. It was a stone house, but the foundation is still there. Wow. But no, I say this house was built in uh, 1786. <clears throat> I presume my relatives were very active in the Revolutionary War, and I presume they probably came home with some funds that they could build a house uh, of yeah, this size. Yeah, it seems to have been, they must have been doing something right, because like you say, they, they must have been wealthy, because at the time, too, from what I, I read, the brick facade was a very modern feature at that time. So the fact that they had that feature on this house at that period indicated that they were very, very comfortable yeah. uh, in, in society. Well, there's stories, and I don't think they're true, that the original front of the house was stone. Correct, yes. And I put and, that and, over it, yeah. But I don't believe that's true. No. I think, well, I mean, you look at the structure of the house, the, the front of the house is brick. Right. And, and that wall is six or eight inches thinner than the ends or the mm. back wall of the house. Okay. And there is a brick which I can show you on the front of the house that says 1786 on it. <laughs> Impressive, yeah. Uh, I, I think the original house, the front was brick. Okay. And I can say that for another reason. On 209 between Accord and Kerhonkson, there's a brick house, sets right on 209, and that was built about the same year as this stone house. You know, full two-story. Yep, similar style. And that has, the front is stone, the sides are brick, and the back is brick. So, I... Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that, that's a good... Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 you know, as, as you look at the structure of the house, I think the original front was brick, yeah. Got it, got it. No, so it's it's obviously impressive to still be in a, in a house that, that of that age, still standing, and obviously I'm sure a lot of history in this house. Now, moving beyond the house now, the, the land, the roundout value touched on it. So obviously it's a, a special piece of the land in the sense of its fertility. So from what I understand, it's a floodplain, which is what really gives its fertility. So tell me a little bit about the history of what was grown on this farm. So at, at the beginning, when the farm was established in the, let's say, the 18th century, around the revolutionary period, what, what was the crop that the family was focused on? <clears throat> well, I, I would presume, you know, other than being a self-sustaining farm, 
During the Revolutionary War, the schoolmakers were very involved as lieutenants, captains, whatever. And I presume that the family supplied oats and grain and feed for the for the animals, for the horses and the mules that the Revolutionary Army used during the Revolutionary War, I presume. Right. And 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 as I say, I, I know the the family was very active as lieutenants, captains, generals, not only our family but the whole schoolmaker right. family. And I think it Back at, in the 1700s, there were quite a few schoolmakers in the area. Yeah, I'm sure. There was a lot of children, and, that's and for sure. <laughs> some, something rather interesting to me is there was General Ludington who lived down in Putman County, and he had a daughter, Sybil Ludington, that at 16 years old rode her horse and alerted her father's militia men hmm. that the British were coming. And this she did at midnight, and it was a more famous ride than Paul Revere's. Was, oh, well, there you go. And and if you ever go to uh, in Putman County, but there's a statue of Sybil Ludington on her horse, Carmel, Lake Carmel. Carmel, okay, yeah, that's not too far from where I am. Yeah, well, you go so there and you'll see one. right on the edge of the lake. Uh, huh, amazing. And, and, uh, she's on a horse and a bronze statue, I think. And, huh. Yeah. There you go. So even more. And that's where my middle name is Ludington, and that's ah, where. Okay. So somehow, but and that's a different part of the story. Yeah, I, I would guess you know they were very active, as they say, in the Revolutionary War. And wheat wheat seems to have been a big crop yes, wheat uh, was during a the big time. Crop. And that, and that makes sense. It was an easy crop in the, yeah. in terms of trade. Obviously, you could use it as grain. I know Washington yeah. preferred that as a food stuff. And then, obviously, flour was also a high yeah. high valued export item at that point as well. So I imagine that was a a key yeah. crop on the farm at that period. And then uh, a few years after the Revolutionary War, the D and H Canal was built. I was just going to bring that up. That the, that, the that changed things Canal. significantly. Yeah. And that the DNH Canal is 20 foot behind our house. Right. My great grandmother had a store in the cellar, huh. and and I'm, I'm I'm quite sure that the farm probably supplied feed for the mules that pulled the barges on the canal. You know, plus my great grandmother sold vegetables and you know to the canalers. Can I, is that how you say it? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't know a better way to say it. But yeah, the canal, yeah, that, that must have been a very yeah, significant was, The canal was very, very instrumental in the success of, I believe, of the Schoolmaker Farm. For sure. And for those so, listeners that aren't aware, so the, the D&H Canal was actually constructed in the mid to, I believe it was around 1826. Yeah, 1826. It was in 1826 and opened in 1829. Right, right. And it connected, it was a canal, so they were trying to move coal. From well, Pennsylvania, right? to Well, to supposedly, the stories that I have heard that every stick of wood was cut off between Montreal and New York City that was used for heat, for firewood. And they had this all this coal in Pennsylvania, anthracite, hard coal. They couldn't burn it. They could burn bituminous coal because it did not need an updraft. Okay. And someone came up with a, a graded furnace or what, where the air came from the bottom. Right. And they could burn this hard coal. Now, how are they going to get it from Pennsylvania 
to New York City. The rest <coughs> well, <laughs> first they were going to go down to Delaware to Philadelphia and reload it on and bring it back up the ocean to uh, New York City. And the Wurtz brothers got the idea to build this canal in, in 1894, uh, and supposedly they came up with the idea and they went to the New York Stock Exchange at 9 o'clock in the morning and sold a million dollars worth of stock at three seconds after nine, it was all sold. Wow. And the Wurzboro, you know, is named after the Wurz brothers. Yeah, yeah. And they and they built the canal, or had it built, and it took three years to build it. And I guess it was built mostly by Chinese. Yeah, a lot of immigrants. Chinese immigrants, you know, yeah. that uh, other thing about the canal. My great-grandmother and great-grandfather were married in... 1870, 71, and in 73 or 74, he was driving a team of horses in the wintertime, and right below the house here, there was a bridge over the canal to get to the, and something spooked the horses, and they went off the bridge into the water, and he drowned oh, uh, in, the, in the ice in, in the wintertime in 74, 70, uh, 18, and my great-grandmother, Louise, ran the farm hmm. uh, you know even though my grandfather was a couple years old she was evidently from you know his family history she was a very very well respected lady in the community yeah supposedly whenever she went into a public the men would get up and this is before women's suffrage sure would get up and take their hat off to her. Wow, and, that's significant. So she, and, and she certainly other, must have been a impressive woman. And she, she died March the 23rd, 1923. Mm. And the other interesting thing is the O&W Railroad, which was built in 1898, put on a special train from Kingston to bring mourners to Accord the day of her service and a special train from Ellenville to Accord to bring... Wow. She, I guess she was quite a lady. Uh, Sounds yeah. like it. Yeah. Sounds like it. Well, that, actually, this is a great place to take a pause because like you just mentioned we're we're now seeing railroads enter the picture. So when we get back to our conversation, we're going to explore more of these technological improvements that help progress the Schoonmaker Farm. We'll be right back. Discover Orchard Freshness on Amazon Fresh with Arctic Apple Slices. Arctic Apples stays orchard fresh longer than other prepackaged, pre-sliced apples. This means less waste and no more half-eaten apples. Plus, you'll love the undeniable freshly picked flavor. Arctic Apple Slices are available in convenient grab-and-go bags in both Arctic Golden or Arctic Granny varieties in select markets on Amazon Fresh. Packable, snackable, 100% irresistible. JGLC, the place to be, a third-generation, family-owned and operated asset-based company. Throughout their 60 years in business, integrity, reliability, and loyalty to their customers has remained their top priority. JGLC guarantees 24-7 communication with your personal logistics coordinator. They offer competitive pricing without sacrificing services. They operate throughout the United States and Canada. 
JGLC's customers count on them for dependability and dedication carried out on every order, every time. 60 years of service for all your trucking needs. Visit them at JGLC.com for your custom quote. Are you ready to enhance your skills? Every day we are tasked to make fast, effective decisions to keep up with the fast-paced produce industry. At AgTools, we take the pressure off of gathering data to help make your day easier and more enjoyable. Connecting the supply chain with AgTools is unique, practical, and easy. AgTools can be used from multiple angles of the produce industry, from farmers all the way to logistics companies. We call that 360-degree decision-making day after day. Visit us at www.agtechtools.com to gain more reliable and relevant data to see more, achieve more. And now, back to our show. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. We're still in Saunders Kill Farm, and I'm here with Jack Schoomaker. And we just left off learning about the DNH Canal from the mid 1800s. And as Jack was just touching on, he mentioned railroads entering the scene. So we're going to start talking about railroads. So DNH Canal seems to lose its relevancy towards the end of the 19th century yes. because railroads are now the new thing in the world. So with the DNH, we saw obviously growth with the farm. As you mentioned, vegetables uh, were, were becoming a big item that's being used. What happened once the railroad came in? I understand dairy was starting, probably even before that a bit, was starting to become more of a, a crop, not necessarily fresh produce, but it was still uh, an item that the schoolmaker farm was heavily involved in. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that. When the railroad was built in 1898, a year or two after that, there were three farms here. Our farm, the, the, the Davenport farm next door, Ira Davenport, and uh, there was another Schoolmaker farm in Accord that grew all kinds of produce, uh, you know, from radishes to cabbage, you know, to zucchini squash or whatever. And when the railroad opened in 19, roughly 1900, the railroad built went from Kingston to Wurtsboro. And then there was an offshot, I don't remember what the, it wasn't the O&W, but it went up to Parksville in Sullivan County. Hmm. That time, Sullivan County was a very prominent, excuse me, but Jewish community mm-hmm. during the summer months for for, for people to spend the summer sure. vacation. And the railroad, as they say, the O&W Railroad built three special cars that, that had ice bunkers in them. Mm. One was for us, one was for the neighbor, and one was for the other schoolmaker. Huh. And the railroad would park these in Accord on a siding in the m- morning and pick them up in the afternoon. And this gave the three farms time to gather the produce, take them to Accord, and put them on the train. And the train would take them to Park or to Wurtsboro, mm. and then another train would take them to Parksville. And the three families either had a family member or an employee in Parksville that would sell the produce, the Jewish trade. I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, this is a true story. And and this, this went on for, well... 
I used to deliver produce up there in the in the 50s. Okay. So this went on for almost 50 years. Quite some time, yeah. And it was very, very productive for the three families. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I can remember as a boy, you know, when when auto or tr- auto trucks became popular, my father loading three trucks at night out here, and then the drivers would come at four o'clock in the morning and. And take the produce up to Sullivan County. It, it was a big, big business. So. Yeah, so yeah. it was really the railroad that that kicked that off. Connected with like well, the yeah, made boxes. it popular or possible to get the produce up there. Up there, yeah. Yeah. And then obviously a lot of tours coming up from the cities yeah, up to this yeah, region. Yeah. And you had these, I know, tourist towns. And so I, I understand too, the Schoonmaker Farms yeah. supplied a lot of these tourist towns and the facilities there yeah, with fresh yeah. produce and. Yeah. Schumacher and Davenport, and you know, yeah, Davenport's had three. And I understand in World War II, when World War II hit, obviously, like you just touched on, the Schumacher farm was was quite uh, was busy with the vegetables and supplying these these different areas. But obviously, labor became an issue with a lot of the young, able men going overseas to fight. Um, and I understand that a lot of immigrant workers came to work on the farm. I, I believe I was reading that a lot of those families even sometimes still come back today, to, uh, the, the descendants of that, to help out every now and then? Or maybe it was not, maybe it was a few years ago that that was still the case? The Is, migrants, you say? Right, yeah, the immigrant workers that came here during World War II. Well, when I was growing, I was born in 1933. When I was growing up, local teenagers, you know, older than I am, working for my father, harvesting, you know, the weeding the crop, harvesting the crop during the summer months. Yeah. And, of course, when Labor Day came, that business, all, you know, ended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, like you say, after World War II, a lot of those boys didn't come back. Yeah. And, and a lot of them that, that did come back weren't going to be work on the farm. They were going to get a better... Better paying job. Right, right. And and, and 1945, the farmers in the valley, at one time there were 12 or 14, you know, got together, hired Jamaicans. Okay. And they stayed for one year, and then they hired Bahamans the second year, and then the third year they hired Puerto Ricans. At one time there were 450 Puerto Ricans here in Kerhonkson. But that, that's when the county grew mostly sweet corn. Okay. At, uh, so that was the top crop during that period corn, of sweet yeah. corn. Yeah. From Allenville to Hurley. I mean, there, was, there were 10,000 acres of sweet corn growing here in the valley. Wow. Believe it or not. And 90% of it went into New York City. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, corn is, is and, certainly and one today, of the crops. Today, I think there's less than 500 acres of sweet corn growing in. Yeah, Ulster County. Yeah, a lot of changes. That's for sure. But uh, uh, you talk about uh, we still have two Puerto Rican workers, and one of them. This is his thirty seventh year to wow be with us. It says something, you know, not just touching on obviously the Schoonmaker family and their legacy through you know over three hundred years of farming, but the fact that you have farmers are yeah that come on to the farm to help you out and. That kind of uh, legacy yeah. as well. That that says something about well, the environment fortunate. here and the, the people. Uh, amazing. And so, 
looking at today, so you touched on you know less less than 500 acres of sweet corn in this area today. What's what's the Schoonmaker Farm product looking like in terms of what they're harvesting and growing today? I know I can imagine that's changed a lot as well. Well, we went from 350 acres of sweet corn down the last three or four years down to 20, and now we're the acreage is in soybeans and field corn, which requires very little labor. Mm. Other, you know, other than what the, my two sons can do. With the, I don't know what the future is. I have 13 grandchildren, great-grandchildren, I'm great sorry. Grandchildren. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of people and, there. And a couple of the female grandchildren are very interested in the farm market on 209. I personally don't know what's going to happen to the farm in the future. Fortunately, it's all paid for. There's no mortgage on it. Yeah, I can imagine that. Uh, <laughs> it's been here for a few years. Which I think is a big help. You know, everything, equipment's all paid for. David, my youngest son's oldest boy, is a teacher in local school. I don't, he's been there 16, 17 years now. Mm. What his interest might be after he retires, I, I, I don't know. I can't predict the future. I wish I could, yeah, but course. I... Well, if, if history's any uh, clue, I'm sure there's going to be something. It seems, well, uh, fortunately, they've all said to me, don't sell it. Yeah. All the, all the grandchildren, you know, and of course the great-grandchildren aren't quite old enough to say that yet. But uh, <laughs> No, I, I, I feel it'll be kept going. What do you think has been the, yeah, it's a little cliche, but the secret to the family keeping the farm operating for this long to this point. And I don't know how to answer it. I, I, uh, you think it's more passion for... for I, I would say, or? yes, a lot of it is passion for the family, for the land. For, yeah. You know, when you were growing up, this is where you lived, this is where you ate, this is where you... You know, I've been here for almost 90 years. Next week it'll be 90 years. Wow. Right here in this same house, you know, and I presume the generations before me probably had the same same feeling. I, yeah, I, I would imagine if I were in those shoes, yeah, it's a hard thing to walk away from or yeah, to imagine yeah. walking away from when you can, yeah, if, look out your window and see the, the legacy and the history of your family that has spanned that many generations. It's, it's an amazing thing with a lot of history. And well, one, one positive thought is I said to my uh, Jennifer, who was, she isn't quite the oldest grandchild, but she's married and has three children, and she and her husband manage the farm market. I said to her a couple of years ago, or no, she said to me, she says, when you move out, I'm moving in. <laughs> All right, so she's got her plans already. So uh, she got her plans on, and she has three daughters, and they all love the farm, and so I don't have any questions that it won't be kept going. That's, that's if good. that's the right words to say. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or kept in the family anyway. Uh, For sure. Fortunately, uh, it, it is, well, we own about 800 acres. There's six, 600 of it is floodplain. Okay. So it fortunately can't be built on. So it can't be sold for development. Right, right. And fortunately, New York State has the Ag District Law mm -hmm. that controls the 
the taxes on on the agricultural land is established by the product productivity of the land, yeah. which is a very good law. Yeah, so you have some protections in place to yeah, yeah, the, you know, the uh, longevity, at least I, I as long as the family wants it to stay in in, in operation. You know, the, the the biggest thing is the taxes on the house here are pretty substantial. Yeah, unfortunately, like a lot of New York State these days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as far as as we start to wrap up here, like you mentioned, you're still doing field corn and soybeans today. Are these products something that you sell within the local community and that people can still... We, we harvest them in the fall and have storage grain bins that we dry the, the grain and store it and try and sell it when the market is at its best. Sure. The soybeans, uh, if I understand, into uh, Newark, New okay. Jersey, and go on to a container ship and go to Indonesia. Now I don't. Oh, wow. I, we sell them to a broker. To a broker, of course. Yeah. Broker. Yeah. Now I don't know if this is true or not, but that's what <laughs> we've been told. And you know, a truck comes and picks up 35, 40 ton and takes it down there. And fortunately, there's a uh, a feed mill in Goshecton. Uh, which is up on the Delaware River, family-owned, and they buy all of our corn. Okay. Real corn, you know. In fact, we got a couple loads left yet that they got to pick up, and uh, and and, yeah. and they take it to the mill and grind it and sell it to dairies and poultry farms and yeah, Sullivan and we'll see, yeah. New York, Ulster County, and yeah, and amazing. The, yeah. Well. Yeah, pretty amazing to think, especially the last comment about the soybeans. So, uh, an over three hundred and three hundred fifty some odd year old farm that started in New Netherlands in the sixteen hundreds, and it's growing soybeans and exporting them to uh, Indonesia. Pretty, pretty fascinating way to to round out the story of your farm. I think, obviously, again, uh, an amazing history here. Um, I'm sure, again, something that. Your whole family feels very proud of. Obviously, I want to thank you for for allowing me to visit today and 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 hosting me in your in your beautiful home here. Yeah, we'll we'll leave it at that, mm. and uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye bye. Thank you. You've been listening to the Produce Industry Podcast with Patrick Kelly. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Anchor to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Produce Industry Podcast. Until next time, see you in the fields or on the horizon.